port of Houston is big. So big, it handles 73% of all container traffic for the Gulf Coast, 97% of containers for the state of Texas, and depending on how you're measuring, it's the fifth largest port in the country in terms of overall traffic. Despite this, the port is getting bigger. Project 11, the 11th expansion of the port, is currently underway. This expansion, widening the channel from 530 to 700 feet, is ongoing and a major new consideration in how we think about the port and the channel in Houston. I'm Weston Twardowski, an instructor in Rice University's Environmental Studies Program and the Program Manager of the Diluvial Houston Initiative, and you're listening to Gulf Streams on KPFT Houston, where we talk with leading experts and community leaders to better understand the environmental problems and potential solutions facing our community. Today on Gulf Streams, we're speaking with Leticia Guerrieres, the Government Relations and Community Outreach Director of Air Alliance Houston, Arandi Trevino, an organizer at Public Citizen, and Alan West, a Senior Communications Manager at the Environmental Defense Fund. All have been thinking and advocating to raise awareness of concerns around the port expansion and its impacts on local communities. Leticia, Arandi, Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, so just to start us off, <laughs> the, all three of you are um, from organizations that are part of a group called One Breath Partnership. Uh, can you just tell us what One Breath is and what it's been working on around Project 11? Um, so One Breath is led by um, EDF, which is the Envi- Environmental Defense Fund, along with Air Alliance Houston, which is the organization that I work for, along with Public Citizen. And so together, One Breath, a lot of what they do is um, uh, journalistic um, type of work. And, you know, uh, we help them bridge that gap to, you know, provide storytelling and also report on what's going on on the ground in regards to um, not just necessarily regarding the port, but anything um, environmentally unfriendly in our communities. <laughs> Great. Thank you. So jumping right into Project 11, can you tell us a little bit about why this is coming about, what's going on with it, and and what the concerns related to it are? Sure. I want to also start off by saying, um, so my, yes, my name is Leticia Gutierrez, and I'm the Government Relations Director, <clears throat> excuse me, Community Outreach Director, as well as a Community Outreach Director for Air Alliance Houston that is a part of the Healthy Ports Community Coalition as well. That we um, So it's a coalition that partners up with One Breath. And so we do have some partners in, in the Healthy Ports Community Coalition that um, also work towards a lot of what we're doing today. Um, we have Naomi Yoder, who is with... Um, Healthy Gulf, and then we have the Bayou City Waterkeeper. We also have obviously Public Citizens, and then we have uh, Reverend Caldwell with Coco. Um, so we have a few other organizations that also make up the work that we're doing. Um, so, you know, a lot of what we do is community based, what we consider community based science. Um, we listen to community concerns um, around, of course, you know, our organization is more based in regards to air quality issues. But as it pertains to the port right now, um, regarding the Project 11, we have some serious concerns um, around the dredging. And more importantly, not just the pollution that's going to come from the dredging itself, but where they, they the Army Corps of Engineers and the Port of Houston are wanting to put the dredge spoils, which currently those spots are Galena Park and um, Pleasantville, which are communities that have already uh, been uh, burdened with a lot of the, um, 
I guess, uh, expansions in the past with the port, along with, you know, uh, water contamination, air contamination. So we have some serious concerns. And to your point, it is one of the largest ports in the country. And if not the world, we're also considered the energy capital of the world. And the port has some serious responsibilities. So um, we know that they have been doing a fairly decent job in terms of um, engaging us. But unfortunately, we really haven't pushed the needle as far as we should have, considering the way not just our region, but our country is moving more and more towards, you know, understanding what these air chemicals are doing to us, but what it has in terms of genera- gen- generational effects. Great. All right. So, yes, this is a big Sorry. issue. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it I, does involve a lot of partners yes. um, and a lot of different as, issues, right? Like, absolutely, you're talking about, the, you know, the port uh, is a major employer in town. It's a major resource in town. People have a lot of different needs related to the port. And at the same time, it's impossible to ignore. It is a major air pollutant center. It is a major water pollution center. It is noise, light, all kinds of things we can think of. Um, but let, let's hone in a little bit. I, I want to go back to one of the earlier things that you said, which was specifically about dredge piles. And so let's just maybe start with dredging is involved in expanding the port. What What is dredging and what are we worried about with it? Yeah. So hi, my name is Serandi Trevino. I'm an organizer with Public Citizen and I help manage the uh, Healthy Port Communities Coalition here in Houston. Um, and so, yes, to your question, what are dredge, what is dredging? Because, um, so the Houston Ship Channel um, operates through dredging on a regular basis. They regularly dredge, which means mm-hmm. that they pull, they s- essentially excavate material from the bottom and from the sides of the mm. ship channel. And um, and so that's called dredge material, yeah. the things, what they scoop out. And so they're consistently doing that because um, just through the operations, you know, the channel didn't wasn't always there, right? A yeah. hundred years ago, the, the ship channel was created, which is, um, you know, it came from Galveston and was essentially dredged out um, through to the point where it is today. Hey, all can you can you hear me? This is Alan West. Yes, <laughs> Alan, did you want to did you want to jump anything. in? Um, okay, sorry, <laughs> keep going, Randy. <laughs> yeah, sure thing. Um, and so, Project Eleven is the eleventh major expansion of the Houston Ship Channel because the Ship Channel was created and then. Um, gradually it was made larger and larger to the size it is right now. And so right now, uh, most recently, the Panama Canal was expanded. And due to that expansion, a lot of other channels around the country have felt the pressure to expand as well. Mm. Because with that expansion through the Panama Canal comes the potential and the possibility for larger ships and larger vessels to come through. And so the Houston Ship Channel also wants to have that capacity. So... You know, fair enough. Uh, However, it does come with consequences. Um, The expansion, which again, it requires dredging down and to the sides, um, would make it to where these larger vessels would fit through the channel. What this larger vessels means is going to be more um, contamination in Mm -hmm. our city all throughout the city really, because there's going to be more um, more traffic related to the. 
to the increased um, imports that are going to come with these larger vessels. So that's one thing. But also dredging itself is a pollutant, uh, a polluting, you know, activity. It, dredging equipment is heavy machinery that uses diesel, and so that pollutes heavily into communities. However, there are cleaner and cleaner um, equipment that's becoming available as the technology advances. And so, you know, what we're asking is, okay, you're already wanting to expand the channel that's underway. Um, do it in a way that's going to be um, least impactful on communities that are already hit hardest by pollution. So this is part of what you're talking about with these ever-increasing ports is this kind of arms race that's happening with <laughs> shipping where it's just, you know, larger and larger vessels. And really, I mean, we're talking about kind of astronomically sized massive vessels that are just not at all sustainable for natural port infrastructure that keep requiring ports around the world to keep expanding. Um, and so this issue of dredging is, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm curious if you can talk about what are the concerns related to these bigger and bigger ships? What are the, you know, these pollutants you're talking about directly with the port that are coming off that? And then I think we'll jump into some of the actual dredge waste, which is another concern. But, but just to start us off, the ships themselves, like what, what are the problems with these massive container ships. And I really can't stress enough how huge these things are. They're like small cities that are basically moving on the water. Alan, do you want to jump in? (laughs) (laughs) I think we may be having technical difficulties with Alan at the moment. So let's let's give it a moment and see if we can get him in. Well, I guess I can can go ahead and jump in as well. I I feel that, you know, a lot of the... um, the work that we do and the outreach that we do with community, um, we try our best to not necessarily bombard them with, um, I mean, yes, of course, we do um, talk, speak to, you know, a lot of the, the diesel emissions and the knocks um, that come in, you know, in part with a lot of these concerns that we're speaking of today. And so to your point, yes, there is a lot of uh, ship traffic and container traffic. And so, you know, about pre, well, about four years ago, pre-COVID, we took some of our elected officials and and staff, including stakeholders, um, to the Port of LA and to the Port of Long Beach to see how, you know, those ports there have actually been able to um, achieve zero emissions and to, you know, make it known that these things are, are possible for our community as well. I got involved in this work almost 10 years ago um, because my son developed an upper respiratory issue. And then I saw an article out in the Chronicle regarding a study that UT Health had done about children living two miles or less near the port being 50 times more likely to get certain types of childhood leukemias. And so as a mother, that was very concerning. I just did a 180 on my career and delved into this work. And so um, I'm here today because of that. Um, I am a product of the East End. My family and I live near the port. We experience a lot of the smells, a lot of the things that we were, were speaking of here. So it's not just a personal thing. It's also the way that our community is also responding to these issues. As I mentioned, more and more information. We have access to the internet these days where you can Google these chemicals. You can Google what particulate matter 2.5 is and what it does to your body. Um, most of us are able to expel it. But for those of us with you know immunocompromised or small children, pregnant mothers, uh, you know, know, people with heart disease and all kinds of other health elements, this is a huge concern. And so again, this is 
why a lot of us do this work is because I know that what you know, um, I consider it on the a friend because we 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 bond over these issues. She also is experiencing you know health issues and health concerns around the exact same things that we're fighting for right now. So um, it's it's personal to us, and and we do what we can every single day. We we rarely take any time off, which is unfortunate um, to make sure that again we're pushing the needle where it should be because we feel that the port is years behind the curve. And again, um, you know, there's, there's ways to do it. There's ways to mitigate. And unfortunately, I feel our lawmakers are, you know, those that are, that are empowered think that we should just keep doing it the way that we've been doing it for the last 50, 100 years mm. and that we're going to get different results. And that's not the case. So, I mean, that's very clear on some of mm-hmm. these immediate health impacts that you're seeing and feeling in these areas. I'm wondering, I think we have Alan back on. I wonder if we can go over to Alan and, and talk a little about some of the new impacts coming directly out of Project 11, some of the stretch material that's been mentioned. Alan, can we? Can you hear us? Are you there? I can hear you all. Can you hear me? We can hear you. Yes. yes. Welcome. Wow. <laughs> Thank you wow. so much for joining. And sorry about the tech glitches there. Um, I am too. Uh, we, we've been uh, talking a little about the health impacts and the port expansion in general. We did mention dredge material and what dredging is. Uh, I'm wondering if you can talk to us some about what's going on with this, you know, dredge material, where it's going, what because I know there's a whole set of concerns around where it's going. Can you walk us through some of that conversation? Sure. I, I, you know, Irandi and Leticia would be better than I to speak to this, but, you know, essentially the, um, you know, to, to anytime you make a body of water uh, wider or deeper, you have to, you know, the word dredging is literal. In this case, you have to scoop the, the, the banks on the bottom. And then uh, with all that sediment that you're, 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 you're um, creating, there need, it needs to go somewhere. Right, and so the, for for many many years, um, Port of Houston has owned these huge patches of land um, in places like Pleasantville, in places like Galena Park, in places like the East End, which um, near where Leticia lives, um, off Old Galveston Road, and so these these sites are essentially. They just they they look like weird tall meadows, mm. sort of these ur- urban mesas that are just covered in grass and trees. Um, they're not really marked. They're not fenced off. Um, one of Leticia's colleagues has talked about you know when he was a boy he would sort of you know play on them, right? Riding his bikes through the mud. And we're talking and about sites that have just been been where material's been dumped. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Where the material has already yeah. been dumped. Yeah, and some of the sites have been decommissioned. Uh, the, the one in Pleasantville had a very famous uh, breach in, in the 50s, I think, 1957. Mm-hmm. And, Correct. Um, just blocks and blocks of this, this sort of toxic... You sludge. Know, yeah. Sludge. <laughs> right. Nobody really knew what was in it, but it was swamping cars and getting into people's houses. And so with Project 11, a lot of these decommissioned sites are being... Uh, put back into place mm. um, the million cubic yards, something like that, of this muck. And you can see why folks, you know, don't necessarily want to live to a toxic, next to a toxic mountain. And, and But the, it's this the question of, of what's exactly in those sites and how toxic they are and how things move and shift on the ground and what the flood risks would be. There's, there's just an endless series of questions that 
Um, I don't think the Army Corps of Engineers is doing the work or Port Houston has really been able to answer to anyone's satisfaction. Mm. No, I was going to say he's absolutely correct. And um, to that point, you know, we did have a uh, community town hall meeting back in August with the Army Corps and the Port of Houston to talk about, well, the port was there to give a presentation on dredging and community spoke up specifically around what Alan just mentioned, the 1953 flood that happened in the Pleasantville community. Um, You know, the community has stepped forward and told their stories about either they themselves were in those floodwaters and they have had families, they themselves with cancer and other illnesses that they feel as directly related to the fact that they were in these um, very dangerous poisonous waters. So, you know, it's very hard to say exactly what is in the soil. We have done our own independent testing But even then, we can't really speak to that just yet because they're still preliminary. But even the preliminary results does have some serious concerns around some of the heavy metals, Mm -hmm. some of the carcinogens that, again, um, that we're speaking to. And so um, we, you know, we shouldn't, um, as a nonprofit organization that have limited funding, um, you know, shouldn't be, this burden shouldn't be falling on us, you know, the the citizens, the community. Um, You know, these are things that, you know, those that are supposed to be there to protect us should already be doing. So that is why, you know, um, we do have some friendly folks inside the EPA, Dr. Earthia Nance, mm. um, who is the, the Region 6 uh, director for EPA. So, you know, prior to the town hall meeting, we did have a um, EPA tour um, with, you know, all said parties, you know, Army Corps, Port of Houston, community leaders, those that are that stand to be affected by these these concerns. Um, and, you know, we raised awareness. Um we're still in conversations around, you know, again, the concerns themselves. Um, our next step at this point is to, you know, go to our congressional leaders and ask, really demand for a um, uh, congressional hearing um, because we just genuinely don't feel that at this point, given all of the things that we've, all of the concerns that we've raised, all of the, you know, stories, talks, you know, I mean, we are literally pointing and providing all of the, the needed proof, if you will, um, and and the things that we're consistently asking for are not being delivered. Well, let me ask, because you all are community members yourselves. Correct. You are, you know, going to these meetings. What do you want? What does the community, what is the community asking for? What are these, you know, when you go to a meeting, what is coming up? What is being, you know, vocalized by community members in terms of how this should be handled and what should be done in terms of the port's future? No, absolutely. I mean, we want the Port of Houston to own its responsibility. First and foremost, we can, there's ways to be able to put these current the current plan of where the dredge spoils are, are planning to be placed in Galena Park and Pleasantville to move them up further east away from community. Mm. Um, there's also, you know, you know, having the chip channel require facilities to pay when they pollute, you know, or also paying for independent thorough air, soil and water monitoring. And these results need to be available and enforceable to us, the community. Um, you know, along with subsidizing some of the bridges and infrastructures needed to provide, you know, underpasses. I know that you visited me a few times regarding or, or around our East End community and trains are a huge issue. So again, I mean, we know that the port makes 
billions of dollars. There's a huge responsibility there. Um, we pay into it as well. So again, these are just in my, in our opinion, some really low hanging fruit that the port could really try to work on. And unfortunately, we're currently feeling as if it's just, let's meet, let's talk about the things, but not really moving the needle forward. Um, you know, they point to some very small, you know, greenwashing type of um, efforts that they've made around, you know, getting some extra electric cars or LED lighting. That's not you know, going to help us in the long run. And community is consistently calling us, asking us, where are we? Where is the port? We see other ports across the country and ours is still very antiquated. Well, and something that, you know, that brings up, right, is 76% of people who live within two miles of the port are people of color. Correct. 75% of people who live around the, in that same region are below the medium household income. So we're talking about the billions of dollars the port brings in but not necessarily an equitable sharing of that, right? That no. I'm not saying these aren't essential jobs or that these aren't, you know, important jobs, the people who work there, but it's at a cost. It's at a health cost, but it's also just at a daily kind of living cost. Port infrastructure does not make for easily passable sidewalks. Often these are food desert locations. This is, you know, kind of systemic structures. And so as you're talking about these other ports, I'm really curious about are other ports doing things better? And if so, what can we learn from them? In your visit to LA and other places that you're thinking of, what are what are ways the port could be a better neighbor uh, to those who, who are essential to making it work? Yeah, I mean, to your point of they're making billions, I want to I want to flag how much, how many they're they're claiming, right? Because um, I mean, Ted Cruz has called uh, the Port of Houston the crown jewel of the Texas economy, mm-hmm. right? Because so so much they claim so much money, right? Mm. So much of a revenue they claim nine hundred and six billion dollars. <sighs> yeah, nine hundred and six. You're, I mean, that's close closer that's to a, a trillion. trillion. <laughs> Right? right? In annual economic value. Yeah. And so things that we're talking about, low-hanging fruit, say sidewalks, mm-hmm. walkable sidewalks, things that will mitigate the impact on communities in some way, right? right. Something that's so simple because at least now they're going to be able to walk to the park if they want to, right. if there's a park nearby, right? Um, and so some of that should be reflected in these communities because the impact is being punted onto these communities. Mm -hmm. That's the problem, right? That the health impacts are so big Mm -hmm. and when cost-benefit analysis are made, those costs, again, they're just being placed on the community. Right. They're not being bared by the port at all. And so it's really frustrating um, whenever we talk to them because they never claim responsibility for um the pollution Mm -hmm. that comes from the ship channel and yet they're claiming all of that money that comes from the ship channel right so something's got to give right (laughs) at least a little bit put some crumbs into the community (laughs) so that people can breathe a little easier literally breathe a little easier right um and so one of the things that we're asking for in this process Mm -hmm. is clarity Mm. because when we talk about dredge spoils we're talking about dredge boils again in the Houston Ship Channel where we know there's heavy, heavy industry, oil and gas capital. Um, we have the largest petrochemical industrial complex in the entire country. Mm-hmm. One of the largest in the world. I right. mean, it's, it's really incredibly vast. Correct. Exactly. And we know the impact of breathing the toxic chemicals that come out of these plas- plastic facilities. And so... 
we want some respect when it comes to the facts. Right. Um, in May, Shell was on fire for four days. Mm. And um, when that fire was put out, all that material, all that toxic um, like sediment, sediment yeah. was washed away into the ship channel. So talking to any normal person, any average person who doesn't have a high level background in engineering or science or what have you will understand (laughs) one plus two. I mean, one plus one equals two, (laughs) right? right? If you have all these uh, chemicals being washed into the channel on a regular basis and you have industry that is not complying to the law. Yeah, we haven't even What's touched the result, that part. <laughs> right? What's the result? It's going to be toxic. Well, I, I, okay. I, I, I want to go into a question here. Yeah. And, and not to bring everything back to disasters and flooding, but something that really worries me is when I when I hear expansion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I jump to Mr. Go, which <laughs> for those who don't know is this Louisiana channel that, you know, was designed to, to kind of reinvigorate the port of New Orleans and wound up turning into a hurricane highway. And it's one of the things we directly attribute Katrina's effect and storm surge too and I'm really curious about if there's if you know anything about what are we thinking about storm surge effects as we continue to expand the port uh, I've got Jim uh, Blackburn in the back of my head from the Speed Center who who has a, a really terrifying presentation he'll be on the show uh, some weeks down the road but just about what the actual impacts of a bad storm hitting the ship channel are and I mean pretty much across the board there there's infinite stories that'll talk to us about this would be the most cataclysmic environmental catastrophe in U.S. history, arguably world history, if a bad storm were to flood out Petrochemical Alley here in Houston. Um, And so, you know, as we're talking about flooding, as we're thinking about former floods, what are we thinking around flooding with this expansion? Is there any real mitigation going on? Are there efforts to protect these areas? Because you're already talking about existing spills. What happens if we have a bad storm come up that that kind of highway. Yeah. And just listening to you say that, I mean, it's not as if we we're not aware and it is in the back of our minds. We're just wondering, is it a, is it in the back of, you know, the port engineer and port mm. director's minds? Because as far as I'm concerned, there is nothing in place. And so that is very concerning. Um, you know, back when Harvey happened, um, Magellan spilled, a, I I mean, what they reported, what actually happened is probably more than half a million uh, gallons of gasoline Mm. into the floodwaters. And so not only did you have uh, Galena Park residents like my my colleague uh, Juan Flores who were trapped in their homes because of the flood, but now they were also trapped with the smells. And so it was, it was so overpowering and, and, you know, families were throwing up. I mean, it was, it was unbearable to be. In, in that space. And uh, again, nothing has been done after that. Um, you would think that after, you know, the Harvey floods and after the chemical spills and the ITC fires that happened, you know, for almost a week and, and the West Side got a pun intended whiff of what we go through on a consistent basis that, you know, some bills would be presented and hopefully passed um, to help us rein in a lot of a lot of these issues. And unfortunately, that's not the case. Um, You know, we continue to get, uh, you know, our, you know, state representation thinking that um, industry and the port can keep continuing as 
they have with no worries whatsoever, which worries us even more to your point. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, the port is also delving into like hydrogen hubs. Um, and they're also, you know, um, and they don't have, I mean, this is new technology. It's, it's not what we're, it's not the answer to what we're looking for. Um, it's a highly explosive gas, you know, again, just adding more layers to an already very burdened community and the issues that we're discussing here that are not being resolved. And so no, there, as far as we're concerned, there are no plans. Um, I, again, I just really think that they feel they'll deal with it if and when it happens but it's not really a matter of if right it's a matter of when when right but Uh, they'll tell you well yeah well if it happens you know harris county has one of the highest rates of natural disasters in the entire country Mm -hmm. and that's because of our location right where we, we are in the gulf but also all the climate changes definitely just kind of come up our our alley right and so it really is a disaster brewing because if a bad storm does hit um, and all these facilities are sort of lined up one after the other, it's just kind of like a domino effect on, on them. If one of them blows up, it can just, you know, start a fire that can just trickle down. Right. And then the other thing is, um, I don't know if you know this, but a lot of the um, air monitors are turned off Oh yeah, right before a storm. storm. And so if during a storm um, there's a big explosion or there's a big spill or there's some chemical release, which usually there are yeah. higher release number of releases right before a storm and during yeah. a storm. That's already a fact. Right. And now there's no monitoring <laughs> that's going to tell you, oh, hey, um, maybe uh, shelter in place or maybe evacuate or maybe do something right, right. To, to save but then think about it. If you're yeah. stuck like my colleague Juan was in his home because it's flooded and yeah. there is a shelter in place and you're, you yeah, you're being flooded by chemicals. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I would take a, a two-second sure. break here just to, to quickly remind folks that uh, KPFT Houston is currently holding our October fund drive. Uh, as public radio, KPFT Houston can only exist with your support. Uh, over 90% of our funding comes from listeners like you. If you're enjoying Gulf Streams and want to support our work, please call... 713-526-KPFT and pledge a donation. You can make a one-time donation or become a monthly subscriber to support our work. Um, In the coming weeks, Gulf Streams is going to feature conversations with local advocates about a range of things, including sustainability officers and new green jobs. Uh, We'll meet with leaders in the field, uh, city officials who will be on to talk about the future of development and planning in the city, as well as the future of transportation in the city. Uh, We'll talk with Pulitzer Prize finalist Elizabeth Rush, all about our new book, The Quickening, Creation, and Community at the Ends of the Earth. And if you pledge $100 or more to Gulf Streams, we'll automatically enter you in a raffle for a signed copy of The Quickening by Elizabeth Rush. Um, additionally, if you want to become a station sustainer, ask about our memory bricks, uh, permanent inscribed tributes to your generosity here at the studio. And during our entire pledge drive for every $1,000 donated to KPFT Houston, we'll be donating a parka to the Houston Center for independent living. Call 713-526-KPFT to learn about
about all the unique pledge drive offerings going on this month. Um, I am really delighted to keep bringing you these important conversations about environmental and climate issues here in Houston and beyond on Gulf Streams, and we can only do that with your support. So please call 713-526-KPFT, make a one-time or subscriber donation, mention Gulf Streams, and help us keep ad-free public radio on the air here in Houston. Okay. All right. So sorry, uh, we're, we're back. Um, <laughs> no worries. And I just, yeah, I want to get back into some of these local impacts, um, but also some some possibilities of what the port could be doing. Um, Alan, I know One Breath just put out a piece, maybe it's, it's a, good time to tar- a good time to turn to you as well, about talking about the Inflation Reduction Act specifically has funds for port futures and for decarbonizing ports, for making ports greener. What are things we can be learning and doing and proactively getting engaged around uh, the city? can be doing um, to, to make our port better for everyone? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, again, there are infinite people who could speak to this much better than I, who um, are part of the Healthy Port Communities Coalition, who are on you know the monthly meetings with Port Houston leadership every month. Um, you know, broadly, we could say that um, the Port of Houston is <clears throat> reluctant, perhaps, to enter the future. Mm. Um, they, you know, as you mentioned, the Inflation Reduction Act grants. There's 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 money in the um, bipartisan infrastructure law, the Investment in, in Infrastructure and Jobs Act, and there there is a lot of money available. One problem, though, is that it's not enough, and it's being fought over from lots of different ports. And so right now, the Port of Houston, I think, has, and Leticia Arundi, if you know, I, I think, correct me, but I, I think they have exactly one piece of fully electric equipment, and it's a drainage truck. And what, so, one piece? One. And they're oh very exactly, proud of it. Exactly yes. one. They're very proud of that little truck. And so, and, and, well, they should be. Well, they should be. Well, but, but with know, 906 like billion. You see, the problem with radio is right. people can't see that I've just kind of momentarily <laughs> frozen here. Which is why I'm um, laughing. <laughs> I think sometimes people think that we make this stuff up. You know, we were in D.C. a couple of weeks ago talking to some other, sorry, I mean, not to go off no. on that, but we, we say these things and that's exactly their facial expression. Like, what? You know, and so again, this is why, I mean, we literally have to point to news articles and other journalists that are elevating these issues because I genuinely feel people don't believe us. Mm. Um, the port loves to sing their own praises. And, you know, to back to going to your question regarding the IRA funds, you know, a lot of what is being pushed right now is the um, carbon capture, which I, I don't want to go too much into the weeds because the truth is, as I mentioned, being transparent here, science is not my background. I know enough to be able to talk to community about it and have community be engaged with it. Um, but carbon capture is being sold as the, you know, solution for everything in regards to climate change and cleaner air and all the things possible. But I'm just not thoroughly convinced that you can uh, 
safely, securely, successfully capture this gas, stuff it into the ground, Mm. pray that it doesn't leak or explode. Oh, let me also uh, remind everyone that it has to be transported through our communities, I'm sure. And then, you know, put in our back in our backyards, basically. Um, And I mean, how many times can we do this and basically try to cheat Mother Nature into thinking, oh, well, let's take it from the sky and stuff it in the ground and see what happens? Because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if it's going to leak. We don't know if it can explode. We don't know like how long it'll last um, in the ground. And so again, um, you know, they're looking to our region to do all the things. Um, And so I'm just it again, um, it makes me very nervous. And, you know, quite on quite frankly, I'm, you know, thinking about moving once these things do get started, because I don't see that how adding more um, layers to the things that we're discussing here today um, is really b- bringing real, true um, mitigation solutions and safety towards community. Yeah, in terms of mitigation um, for Project Eleven, two of the th- two of the things that we've asked for is for uh, the dredge spoil material mm-hmm. test it mm. because the material again is going straight into communities. Yeah. For some people, literally right across the street. And so because we don't know and we assume it's toxic because of what we see and what we know is in the channel, um, but we don't want reassurance just by words. We want to see the results, like show us, test it. Mm-hmm. Some of the results they're relying on are 40-year-old 40 year, 40 year results. So is new testing happening? Not right not, now. Not that we know No, of. that's something that we're pushing for. Right. We have to really fight mm-hmm. for something such as testing. Right. That in itself is a fight. And so that is one of them. Test it. And if it comes out that it's toxic, please don't put it in people's backyards. Backyards. Please don't put it in their communities where when flooding happens, now that toxic material, now we're talking about toxic flooding. Mm -hmm. That's a whole other issue. So please don't put it in people's communities. Move it somewhere else. Move it off the coast. Even though it's, yes, it's going to be expensive. Um, or I'm sure it's not going to be cheap, but again, they are making a lot of money. So please mitigate the impact on communities. And secondly, um, use clean dredging equipment because then we're talking about less emissions on communities that already have really high level of, um, environmental stressors. I'm talking about some of the top 5%, 0.1%, um, of the most affected in the entire country. Mm. Yeah, it's that bad right mm-hmm. here in Houston, and people don't realize that. Right, um, but these are this is true, and one of the communities that where that has a dredge spoil in it is point one on the point one percentile. Right, and so those are a couple of things that we're asking for. They're not the biggest pie in the sky asks, but it's something that will at least help relieve some stressors on communities. So we, we're coming to the end of our time. So I, I, I want to give us a moment to, particularly because you're so connected to these communities, because you're so on the ground with these groups, what are things people in Houston can do to, to advocate for a better, fairer, healthier port? What are ways people can get involved around this issue and what should we be doing? Glad you asked. So first and foremost, <laughs> I would say make sure that you sign up to our newsletter, airalliancehouston.org. And then more importantly, um, I know you community usually hears go vote. Well, that's not enough. We need you to get involved in 
you know, we, I'm, we're a nonpartisan, um, a nonprofit organization. I have to, you know, disclose that obviously, but you can, you know, get involved with a certain candidate that you see is talking about these exact issues, um, and, and block walk for them, phone bank for them and not just show up to click for them, but bring your friends, your neighbors, your family, um, make a day out of it because at the end of the day, I know we hear this all the time, but, but votes and elections do matter. You know, we have, um, 12 port commissioners that also get to decide on these issues. And so every two years, their terms expire. And we're also trying to get community members on those seats and those seats, those members are, are appointed by the mayor and city council and the county. So, you know, again, who you put in these elections and in these seats on the local level have a huge ripple effect on all of the other decision making that impacts what we're discussing here today. So, um, you know, sign up to our newsletters, show up to some of the town hall meetings, even if you don't live in the community, trust and believe that it is going to bleed into yours and sooner than probably than later. And have your voice heard as well. I'm I'm happy to be on this radio show today because I feel that um, I'm not saying that our the, the community that we serve doesn't listen to you guys, but I feel like you guys serve maybe a different demographic. And that's really what we need here is different voices. You know, um, the truth is, is that Air Alliance Houston didn't get involved with uh, the whole anti-idling ordinance because our community spoke up. It was really the West Side and the museum district that were having issues with the school buses that mm-hmm. were idling. And that's how we were able to push the anti-idling ordinance because a lot of moms from the West Side showed up to city council and we pushed it. And it was passed. That's not to say that, you know, we can't do the same, but unfortunately our community doesn't have that same clout and that same power to be able to get these types of things done. So thank you for having us on Weston. And and if anybody has any questions, you're more than welcome to reach out to me, Leticia at airlineshouston.org, and we can definitely continue the conversation. No, I just want to highlight that that's that's a recurring topic that we have coming up is the way that these issues are inter you know, connected and related throughout all of the city and that what impacts one neighborhood is absolutely affecting other neighborhoods, even if we don't see it every day, especially when we think of the way material moves across town. So I really appreciate that and and the many ways to get involved. Um, Leticia, Arandi, Alan, thank you so much for joining. I've I've really learned a tremendous amount to this conversation and I'm so glad uh, to have had you join and to to have been able to spotlight this a little bit. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Um, Thanks. Thanks, Alan. Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll, we'll continue now with one of our ongoing weekly stories. Um, Sienna Yen, one of our researchers, uh, is continuing her series on urban planning and development around Houston. And so we'll go now to Sienna with a conversation on an upcoming development in Houston and what it means for Houston culture and building habits in the city. Welcome to the second episode of Paving the Path to Walkable Communities, where we will explore the transformative world of walkable neighborhoods in Houston. Today, we are going to delve deeper into the development that's redefining the landscape of the East End and Historic Second Ward. Known as the Plant and Second Ward, this project is an ambitious initiative aimed at creating a vibrant, walkable community in the heart of Houston. This week, I am joined by two representatives from Concept Neighborhood, the Houston real estate firm behind this transformative project. So thank you so much for joining me for an interview today. So can you guys both briefly introduce yourselves and your roles at Concept Neighborhood? Yes. So my name is Andrea Daniela. I actually am a daughter of 
this neighborhood, Second Ward. I am the marketing director. Uh, I also, you know, help with leasing and help with being the community liaison and our events and programming. I am Jeffrey Kaplan. I'm a co-founder and principal of Concept Neighborhood. Uh, my, my background is is really as a social entrepreneur and community developer, um, focusing on adaptive reuse and um, historic buildings and and really, you know, really try to do business that has you know, some sort of measured environmental social impact. All right. Awesome. Thank you guys for introducing yourselves. So can you guys tell us about the inspiration behind the plant in Second Ward project and what motivated Concept Neighborhood to undertake this initiative? Great. Well, what, what motivated Concept Neighborhood to focus on this corridor is that we think that there is a missing component to our city's built environment for an authentic, walkable neighborhood that really celebrates the diversity of Houston, which is one of the most multicultural cities in the world. We're lacking a neighborhood where you can walk and explore and have a spontaneous adventure without driving from place to place. So we want to really you know, do something that is, is telling the story of Houston in the most authentic way possible. And we think that there are a lot of young people in, in, in our region that really are wanting this sort of walkable neighborhood. All right. I mean, I know I definitely want to live somewhere like in the future where I can walk to like a grocery store. So I feel like what you're doing is super important. So the concept of a 15 minute neighborhood is like kind of central to this project or central to concept neighborhood. Um, could you kind of explain what this means and why it's like a significant aspect of this development? Yeah, the, the vision is to is to basically create, you know, a small town within the city where all of your basic needs are within a 15 minute walk. So our corridor is the first project to connect a light rail stop, the plant second wire to the Buffalo Bayou Trail system. So it, you know, the you know, there's a big focus on nature and green space and park equity. And and there's a real focus on proximity, proximity between where people work and where people live to reduce auto dependency. The walkability aspect of that seems really great. Um, so going on to like affordability for residents. Um, so we know like affordability is very important for a lot of people. And how is Concept Neighborhood ensuring that this development remains inclusive and affordable for a diverse range of residents? Well, our master plan calls for a mixed bag of housing that really addresses different you know, housing types and different income levels. So we're we're aiming to create what you would what a lot of urban planners and public officials refer to as missing middle income housing or or market-based workforce housing. So we're 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 planning to create dignified high design housing. Uh, that is, you know, that's taking these sites that probably would have been traditionally front loader townhome sites, which sort of kill the walkable urbanism. And we're creating, we're clustering through the corridor in the neighborhood, smaller projects and, and managing it as a neighborhood. But we're, we're, we're focusing on, on, you know, courtyard style apartments that are much more affordable than, you know, the, the typical fancy class A apartment. From a retail standpoint, we're really taking a very different approach to our merchandising. I think Little Red Box is the perfect example of a business that is doing um, a great job at having pricing that fits everyone's needs and 
fits the needs of of all types of people and in income levels and they actually accept ebt they accept food stamps so I do want to note that 80 percent businesses here in the neighborhood are um latino led also from the neighborhood and also women-led Wow, that's really awesome. I like. I feel like looking into Concept Neighborhood online, like you can't find that type of information. So that's really like interesting to hear about. Jeff, you mentioned that you had done work with adaptive reuse. Um, I also read online it plays like a role in the plant second world development. So can you elaborate on this concept and how it's integrated into the project's design and vision? I think part part of what a lot of merchants, especially creative entrepreneurs, are looking for in Houston. Or, or authentic old buildings. There's a scarcity of them because we've, we've done such a good job of tearing down old buildings in Houston. And to that point, I think these historic buildings tell the history of Second Ward and the East End in general of it being an industrial hub. So we're very excited to be able to tell that story and pay respect to that history through the architecture of these buildings. And, and part of the strategy is to sort of save these buildings and to build density around them and, and instead of in spite of these old buildings. People want to live near a place that feels authentic. So our, our first phase is restoring all of these historic buildings with really, really interesting creative uses. Okay, so you mentioned the phases, like you had your first phase. Um, what are the next phases to come? And like, what is the anticipated timeline for these projects? Yeah, well, it's a 10-year project. We're, we're in phase one right now. We've completed the plant um, at 34 Harrisburg where Little Rubber Box and Shruti Kitchen's opening and Eden Plant Store and several other really special tenants. And that's sort of the gateway. And then the next phase is WKM Campus, which is 13 buildings. And we're working on sort of a maker retail um, mall, a marketplace hall, which we're calling an anti-mall. And that's going to be the next two years. That's so the place is vibrant and there's people walking around, then we're gonna build housing. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna take take these locations that are smaller sites, like 5,000, you know, 10,000 square foot sites, 20,000 square foot sites, where you may have seen eight townhomes. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna create these sort of courtyard models for, for density, for studio apartments. This all sounds really great. And I also want to kind of touch on the environmental aspects of what you guys are doing at the plant in Second Ward. This is the, the, the challenge of our time. And I think a lot of people that are looking at data have realized that the impact from investing in walkable neighborhoods is in terms of carbon is so much greater than almost anything else. Because when you're, you know, when you're building a lead building or a sustainable building in the exurbs, the amount of infrastructure, the public infrastructure investment that, that's required to get people there, you know, in terms of the automobile, is just so inefficient. So creating a walkable neighborhood has more impact on, on the environment and on you know, reducing carbon than, than so many other things. So and, and I think and I think, you know, we, we really we really do want people to understand that there's you know, that this bigger environmental impact to what we're doing, especially in Houston. This project is going to be a template for a, a new way that developers can do their project. And I do think that there's a better way to do it that speaks to the community, that respects the culture of that community, and that also respects the history of that community. And we would invite anyone who's curious about what we're doing, that wants to get involved, that has interest in 
you know, hear, hearing the details of our, our our plan and our you know our investment thesis to reach out to us and and ask questions because we want to we want to share what we're doing and we want Houston to know that this is important work. Right. So, is there anything that people can do to become more involved with this project and development? So, you know, with the programming that we have here, it's really important that we invite the community out to come to come check this neighborhood out. And um, we started this initiative to have a monthly block party that celebrates the past, present and future of Second Ward, um, Second Saturday and Second Ward. We have performers, we have local artists, we have nonprofits that come out, we have vendors. So um, we invite everyone to come out in, in what we consider to be, you know, the coolest and most connected neighborhood in Houston. So we're very excited. This all sounds incredibly exciting, and I certainly look forward to the second Saturday block parties every month and to witnessing the transformation of the plant in Second Ward in the upcoming years. Thank you guys so much for sharing your valuable insights and vision with our audience, and it's been a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting us. So that concludes our insightful discussion with the representatives from Concept Neighborhood. Again, thank you to Jeff and Andrea for joining me today. Stay tuned for more episodes of Paving the Path to Walkable Communities. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you guys have a great and wonderful day. And now we'll go over to our researcher, Jaden, who's going to tell us about ways you can get involved here around town in Houston this week. Hey, y'all. I hope you're doing well. And here's your weekly update on ways you can get involved in the community this week. Tuesday, October 17th from 8.30 a.m. to 3.30 p.m., volunteer with SBP, where you'll help rebuild homes that were devastated by natural disasters. Jobs can range from hanging drywall or doors to painting or spackling. If this opportunity excites you, you can sign up on the SPP website, sbpusa.org. Another opportunity that would be very impactful would be to help your local Houston community by packing relief boxes. On Thursday, October 19th from 8 a.m. to noon, join the community and help package food or relief boxes that will be distributed at a later date. You must be seven years or older to participate. If you're interested in this opportunity, go to volunteerhou.org and click the link for packing relief boxes under Thursday the 19th. And lastly, if you're looking for a way to support the environment in Houston, look no further. Volunteer at the 20th Annual Herman Park Conservancy Run in the Park. You can help by directing runners en route or by helping a team set up or take down after the event. This will take place on October 21st and there will be different shifts ranging from 6 a.m. to noon. You must be 13 years or older to volunteer. If you'd like to participate and support this conservation effort, go to volunteerhou.org and look for Volunteer for Herman Park 20th Annual Run under October 21st. Hopefully some of these opportunities will excite you and motivate you to go volunteer in the Houston community this week. Thanks, Jaden. I'd like to point out that Jaden and Sienna, our two researchers, are both undergraduate students at Rice and are are learning how to handle and think about these different environmental issues and also how to communicate those broadly. Um, And that's really one of the big educational goals of this program, as well as to create opportunities for young people to learn about not only the environment, but also how to talk about it. So I I just want to say, in addition to their outstanding work so far, a a big thank you to Jaden and Sienna for just jumping in and 
Ben, and really immediately doing great work thinking about these issues and working as researchers and coming up with these stories. Um, up next time uh, here on Gulf Streams, we have Rice Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering, Dan Cohan, who's going to join to talk about his recent book, Confronting Climate Gridlock, as well as concerns about the Houston grid and the future of energy in the city. Uh, if you have questions or ideas for what you'd like featured on Gulf Streams, leave a voicemail at 713-348-4081. That's 713-348-4081. Or email me at westont at rice.edu. KPFT is in our October fund drive. Uh, to support more programming like this, please call 713-526-KPFT, 713-526-KPFT, press 1 for donations, and mention Gulf Streams when you pledge to help keep our work going. Gulf Streams is a co-production of KPFT Houston and Rice's Center for Environmental Studies with support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Rice Sustainability Institute's Eco Studio. Produced by Weston Twardowski, co-produced by Joseph Campana, audio engineer Rico Enriquez, research support provided by Jaden Bray-Boyce and CNEN. Stay tuned for the R&R Show with Ronnie Renfro and Tom Richards here on KPFT Houston. Thank you, Dr. Twardowski, for what you do here. You've brought... A ray of sunshine on Monday afternoons at noon to talk about something very important, our environment, and what's going on with our environment, which is all kinds of things, and none of them very good right now. Folks, KPFT is supposed to be about education in part, and this program is highly educational. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope that you will support it in Dr. Twardarski's efforts. Rice University graciously helps to bear the cost of this program, and I want to thank them. But we need to thank you, too. So give us a call, 713-526-5738, option 1, or kpft.org, and do your part, just your part. Join us at $5 a month or $10 a month. Whatever it is you feel to be your part, do that. Let us see that donation come in. You're asking for news and informational programs? Well, here's one of them, and it's done oh so well. Thank you for what you do, sir. Thanks, Andy.